the boys. For most of us, I'd say it's hard to, hard to connect with the idea of exile. I mean, tr- just try to imagine it. What would it be like if you were taken from your home forcibly, separated from your family, and force-fed a culture of an occupying power? What would that be like? While it's less common for people in our day to be, I think this thing might not be working. So go ahead and advance that slide. There we go. Um, While it's less common for people to be forced out of their homes by an occupying power, we do have hundreds and thousands of people that are what we call refugees, people who have chosen to be exiled from their home country because it's no longer safe for them to be there. Uh, the, the UN Refugee Agency and a photographer named Brian Sokol decided that they were going to do a, a photo story and, and look at the most important thing that people took with them when they left their, uh, their home. And, and some of them left under um, really extreme circumstances. Some of them sat around waiting for a while, trying to figure out if it maybe might get better or is it going to actually get worse? And then finally they decided that they would leave. And so they had a while to plan what they might take with them. And, and then there is uh, some who they focused their most important thing on, uh, on, on what would help them survive the trip. The, maybe a pot, um, maybe a, an axe, something that would help them survive their, their trek into exile. Others focused on things that would help them remember the culture they came from, um, a special photograph or um, some emblem of their worship. For um, Magbula, she chose to bring a pot. It was small enough to carry, but big enough to feed her and her three daughters. They had weathered air raids for months and they finally decided it was time to leave their village in Sudan the night that soldiers came into their town and started shooting people. They decided that was time for them to go. And so they traveled 12 days with their three children down to the South Sudanese border where there was a refugee camp. Fedeline holds a notebook from her school years. uh, And and in, in her situation, things kept getting worse and worse. And her dad, she's 13, her dad decided it was time to leave immediately when she told the story of seeing a businessman beheaded in their town square. That was the end for him. And so he he grabbed his kids and marched out of there. She didn't have time to grab her school books. She didn't have time to grab her uh, colorful hair ribbons or anything that that she valued. But she wants to be... a. She wants to be somebody in life, and she wants to learn, and so she, she grabbed the thing that was nearest, her notebook and a couple pens, and she took that with her into to exile. Elizabeth brought her Bible on the day that, that she got as a gift on the day of her baptism. It's, uh, it's the only thing that she's kept with her when she went into exile 52 years ago. 52 years, she's been wondering if she can get back to the land that she came from. What would it be like to go into exile? What would it be like to be forced from your home? In Daniel chapter 1, we read the story of several young men. 
We're just going to call them the boys. And these boys, they were selected by Ashpenaz because they were, they were handsome and they were intelligent and Right? So they probably had a, a short conversation, at least, with them. Uh, he, he figured some things out. Maybe it took a few days, but, but they didn't have very much time to figure out what they would take with them. And they were walking, so they didn't have a lot of space to carry a bunch of stuff with them. What do you think Daniel and his friends, what do you think the boys took with them? These were, these were intelligent men, handsome men, young men that, that the occupying power thought might have some diplomatic purpose. And, and whatever their plans might have been as a Babylonian nation, you have to remember that, that the boys came from a, a, an environment of apostasy. The reason they're going into exile is because God is allowing them to be, to be disciplined for their failure to, to stay with their allegiance to Him. They had apostatized against God, and God allowed them to be taken by Babylon. So this is not a happy experience for these boys. It is a very negative experience. Uh, of all the things they could have taken with them, whether it was clothes or trinkets or um, maybe some pieces of Scripture or something, I'm not sure what they might have taken, but one thing I'm pretty sure they took with them, and it was the words that Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel. He said in Jeremiah chapter 35, I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. Ooh, that's really small. You'll have to get out your Bibles for this one. <laughs> I thought it was going to be on several slides. So grab your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 14. And uh, it says this, I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent, you, sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I have given you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear to listen to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing up Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered." Somehow, in the back of the boys' minds was this statement from Jeremiah that, was, that just kept prodding them, that they were here because of Israel's rebellion, because Israel decided to worship other gods and, and follow after their own worldly passions. And as it's ringing in their ears for 900 miles, a a decision started to form in their minds. Maybe not so confident at first, but then it grew. How worse could it get? They were becoming somewhat emaciated um, and this long trek that probably took them over a month to do if they were traveling at the speed of an army marching, probably longer if they were dealing with all of the other things that um, maybe uh, children or uh, herds might, uh, might bring and might slow them down. So they had a long time to think about this. And over that time, it began to settle into their hearts that they would not repeat the rebellion of Israel. That as they went into this foreign country, they would submit to this power. Remember, Jeremiah had said, Babylon is coming, submit to her. That's God's plan. And so they said, we're going to be obedient, and we're going to let God figure out what to do with us from there. 
And so they watched as the rough soldiers who had taken all the stuff that, that was in the, the sanctuary, the, the Bible describes it as tons and tons of bronze and gold and silver and precious things, these emblems from the temple, sacred items that were uh, specifically for the worship of God, things that, Jer- that, that uh, Daniel and, and the other boys would not have ever seen before because they were inside the holy place and the most holy place. And, and yet they saw these rough soldiers piling them into stacks and dragging them into the temple of Marduk, into the, the treasures of a foreign false god. And then they were marched into the barracks where they would be living for the next three years. Marched in and probably given some clothes to change into. And, and uh, then they, they were brought into this place, uh, the, the cafeteria, you might say, the mess hall, I don't know if you'd call it a banquet hall, but, but some place where they were going to eat most of their meals during the next three years. And in front of them was a feast. Now, I don't know exactly what was going through their minds, but the one thing that I think we're pretty confident was there was this idea that we are not going to worship foreign gods. And when the, the, the food was brought in, what they saw was... All kinds, of, uh, all kinds of foods that they wouldn't have, have eaten at home and were certainly given to, to idols. And so they decided, we're not going to eat that food. And then maybe this other thought was in their minds from Proverbs 31.4 where it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. And they started to, to mull that over in their minds and think, you know what? The wine that's there on that table, we need all our faculties, all our willpower to choose the right and refuse the wrong. And so they said, we're not going to drink that wine. And they said no to the meat. And they said no to the alcohol. And, uh, and they turned to the, the chief of the eunuchs, and they said, could you please do something for us? And the Bible records in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, when Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. This chief eunuch was not excited about this... Uh, alteration in the plan. Think about it. They've been marching for over a month, and they are hungry. They're probably leaner than they would normally be, and so the king has given them the best food of the land, food from his own kitchens, to fatten them up. And Daniel is saying, no, thank you. I'd I'd just like some green beans, please. And and the chief eunuch looks at him and says, that's not going to work. But, but look, at, um, look at this in Leviticus 26. I don't know exactly what was going on in, in Daniel's head. I've already said this. I have no idea what he might have been thinking, but I'm pretty sure that back in his mind, his parents who had followed God had put this promise from Levit- Leviticus 26. And remember, we, we studied this last week. God promised, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you peace and none shall make you afraid. And in, in, a, in a context where to ask for leniency, to ask for some change might be to anger the king and get you killed, Daniel clung to this promise. If I obey God, then he will give me peace and I will not be afraid. And, and then the Bible says that God gave, 
the chief of staff, both respect and affection for Daniel. He gave this chief eunuch some kind of affection for this young man, a willingness to work with him. And let me ask you this, did Daniel give that to that man? Sometimes we work for the approval and praise and appreciation of other people. Daniel chose not to do that. He purposed in his heart that his allegiance would be to God and God alone, not to people. And yet when he made his allegiance to God, God gave him a special gift. And, and he made him, he gave the chief eunuch affection and respect for Daniel as a result. Daniel put himself in a place where God could bless him. He said no to the things that, that would harm him and yes to God, and so God was able to bless him. God can't bless disobedience. There's a difference between grace when you sin and God blessing you in sin. Quite a bit different. When we come to God and say, I'm so sorry, I messed up again, the Bible promises that if you confess, he'll forgive and cleanse, right? That's clear. But if we, if we just think that we can live our own life, doing our own thing, self-willed and self-determined, and, and God should just bless us because, what, we come to church on the weekend? That's not how it works. That's the exact problem that Israel had. They wanted to come to the temple and be blessed by God as a nation, while at the same time that they were doing their own thing, which, by the way, included offering their children as burnt offerings to Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. It included all kinds of, of uh, horrible things that they did to each other. God can't bless you in determined sin. But when you put yourself in the place that is following Him, then God says, yes, I've been longing to bless you. And, and so, like Daniel, He can bless you. Unfortunately, this, uh, this man, while he was appreciative of Daniel, knew that his life was on the line and he did not know the promises of God nor trust in Daniel's God. And so he declined to give Daniel his, uh, his approval for the change in the diet. And so, not willing to give up, the boys decided to go to another guy. And uh, it, it says that they, they went to... Um, I didn't write it down. The next guy down. He's the guy, that, the, the steward, that's supposed to give him the food and stuff. And so he just asks the steward next. He says, would you please give us just a test, 10 days? Oh, this is the, the, chief, uh, the chief of the eunuchs. He said, I'm afraid the Lord, the king, who, to, uh, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine, if you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Um, but uh, he goes to this other guy and says, give us a test. And, and um, it'd give us 10 days. It shouldn't be too difficult. We won't die in that time frame. And, uh, and so the, the guy that, that was giving them the food decided that would be okay. And the Bible says after 10 days um, that uh, they were considerably better. God gave them the Bible says that as for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. But, but it, there's something we like to make the connection between food and these outcomes, that they were ruddy and strong and wise and all these good things. And while that's true, 
What's more important is this statement that Daniel makes when he tells us his story. God gave them these things. Now, my guess, if you think about their situation, they were coming from uh, over a month of wandering through the desert. They're emaciated. They need to be fattened up. And all these other guys are given wine and fatty foods and delicacies and uh, who knows what else. They didn't get um, feeling good as quickly as Daniel and his friends did on, on uh, water and, and healthy vegetables. And that, that's kind of a, a logical, natural result. When you eat food that's uh, full of dense nutri- nutrients, your body's going to do what it's supposed to do, and it's going to be healthier quickly. If you drink water, your brain's going to be clear, your the blood's going to flow nicely, it's going to be great for you. Uh, if you. If you drink a bunch of um, sugary sodas or whatever and... and pump a bunch of fatty foods into your body, your, your blood's going to flow slower and you're, you're not going to look as healthy. And even 10 days makes a difference in that. So I'm not saying there isn't a connection, but the thing that Daniel wants us to pay attention to isn't the fact that they ate vegetables. It's the fact that God blessed them for walking in the choices he had asked them to make. When you look at this story, Daniel's story about the boys, you're really looking at a story of God fulfilling his covenant. When he made a promise in Leviticus 26 to Israel and they failed to, to keep their allegiance with him, he had to let them go into captivity. But, but Daniel did not see a God who had failed his covenant. Daniel saw a God who was bringing discipline and he chose to surrender to that discipline and to submit to God. And as a result, he, he expected God to fulfill his promises. He expected God to do the hard stuff, and God did. This opening chapter of Daniel's story ends with Daniel in this favorable position with the king. Um, It says that whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom uh, and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. God had blessed them. And then the chapter just gives us a a sweeping glance to the end of Daniel's life. And it says that he dwelt there, he was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Seventy years um, in in the making is this story. He just kind of encapsulates that. He has favor with the king. And he's there until the first year of King Cyrus. And I think what we want to find out from here, more than anything else, what Daniel wants us to know is that God was with him. If you're looking at the story of Daniel, you, you can't avoid exploring the, the stories that are happening at the same time. Second Chronicles 36 is going on, and Second Kings uh, 24, 25, 26, and then you've got the story of Ezekiel. Now, let me ask you this. When somebody's angry with you, do you feel close to them, or do you feel like they're at a distance from you? You, you kind of feel like they've pushed you away. And it would not have been hard for the Israelites to feel that way about God because God was disciplining them. He had expressed his anger with their rebellion and, and it would have been easy for them to just feel like God had kicked them to Babylon and ignored them. But that, nothing could be further from the truth. When you, look at the story, when you look at the story of Ezekiel, what you find is a man who is 
exiled into Babylon about the same time that, uh, that, that Daniel was. Daniel was 605. He was taken in the first wave. Ezekiel was taken in the second wave in 597, just eight years after Daniel left. And so he's a contemporary of Daniel, probably roughly the same age. He was a priest when he was in Judah, so he was a little bit older maybe even than, than Daniel. And he gets to Babylon, and, uh, and, and he has these visions. And we'll just look at like three verses in, in uh, Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. But as we do, keep in mind what God had said to Israel. He had promised that he had asked them to make him a sanctuary, and there's a purpose, a promise that he would dwell with them. I want to live among you, he says. Make me a sanctuary. Now, Ezekiel, in in, uh, Ezekiel 8, he hears about or sees a vision about the, the temple, the place where God was dwelling. And in this vision in Ezekiel 8, there's um, this writer's, uh, uh, an, an angel or some being with a, a writing utensil and an inkhorn, and then he's got several people that are there with swords or some kind of implements of, of uh, destruction, and God is, has called them to do judgment in Jerusalem. And he says, before we do destruction, I want you to go throughout Jer- Jerusalem and mark everybody who sighs and cries for the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. And he, he says this, and then this, this um, writer goes around and he marks people. And, and, and while we could make connections to Revelation and the mark of the beast or the seal of God, we're just going to leave that for another time and, and recognize where God is. Because there's going to be some destruction here. There's going to be punishment that's going to happen. Where is God in all of this? Just one verse back in Ezekiel 9, verse 3, it says, Now the glory of God, the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of God. God had a sanctuary built so that he could dwell with Israel. And now, from the time of the Exodus until Ezekiel's vision, God had been living in that temple. He had been dwelling there, his visible presence shining from this temple. And yet, in this moment of rebellion and of punishment, God begins to move. And he moves from the holy place to the, to the doorway of the, of the temple. If you've read anything in Ezekiel, you probably remember this weird vision right at the beginning in Ezekiel chapter 1. And in, in, in that vision, he sees the throne of God and it's this indescribable, honestly, but there's this throne that he's sitting on and he's surrounded by this indescribable light and under the throne, the throne is held up by these flying wheels that can go in any direction and have eyes on them. And as soon as you hear that, that they have eyes on them, you, you can't quite figure out what they are. Are they, are they inanimate or are they living? They seem to be living. They seem to be completely in line with God's plan, but they're wheels. What is that? And then you see these four living creatures, and each one have four different faces. And have you ever seen somebody with four different faces? That would be interesting. I'm not sure what to think about that. But, but you have this picture of the glory of God, the throne of God, and it's to this picture that Ezekiel um, points back in chapter 10, verse 19. And he says that the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth, before my eyes, as they went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the, the glory of God, of, the God of Israel, was over them. And so you see this picture: God has moved from the holy place, the most holy place, where where He dwelt, right above the Ten Commandments, on the mercy seat between the cherubim. He moves; the glory of the Lord moves to the 
doorway of the temple. And, and he stays there the entire time that judgment is happening. The, the writers have done their thing, and, and then the, the essentially soldiers, the executioners, that were representative of what Nebuchadnezzar would do when he came and destroyed Israel and killed thousands and took the rest captive to Babylon, they did their judgment. And God, he stayed there during that time. And then Ezekiel 10, 19 tells us that he moved from the, the threshold of the door of the temple to the doorway to the outer courtyard right there in the middle of the city. He's leaving. Punishment is happening. God is angry and he's leaving. Do you ever feel that way in your life? That something's happened, that maybe, maybe you've uh, broken relationship with with God in some way, and you just feel like He has abandoned you. Maybe you don't even know that you've broken relationship with Him, but you feel like He's left. That's a horrible feeling to have. Some more judgment talk happens, but then there's, there's a, something that God interjects in verses 19 to 21. He says, uh, this, is, this is a promise, uh, something that God is, He wants them to see hope. He says, and I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose, hearts go, whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Hope, a rebellious nation, and yet God is saying there's hope. I'm gonna do something for you, he says. And isn't this the God that does the hard things? This is the God of the covenant who said, out of you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And in spite of your rebellion, I'm going to do something awesome. That's God's promise. And it's only after he makes this promise that Ezekiel sees the last move, one more transition in verses 22 to 23. The cherubim lifted up their wings, the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from their midst from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God had left Judah. He had left Jerusalem. And, and we are tempted to think that God abandoned them, when what is really happening is the exact opposite. When judgment comes, God gets close, and He reveals Himself He's not there in the holy place anymore. He's standing in the midst, observing and participating and, and drawing those people that love him close. And then when that judgment is finished and those people are rounded up and taken to Babylon, guess where God goes? He goes east in the same direction that the people are going into exile. And just think about it. Where is Ezekiel when he gets this vision? Where is he when he sees the glory of God? He's by a river in Babylon. God did not leave Judah. He did not leave Israel. He did not leave the people. Think about this. New Testament reminds us, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. No, God dwells with us. And so when, when the, the people were sent to Babylon because of their rebellion... God went into exile too. And he was there with Ezekiel, and he was there with Daniel and his friends. 
when they had the most difficult trials to face, when kings kept pushing them to the point of, of murdering them for disobeying them because of their allegiance to God, God stood with them. And we'll, we'll see in this story as we uncover one chapter after the other, we'll see that God is constantly there. And if there's anything that Daniel wants you to, to catch from his story, it's that God's in charge and he's got a plan and he is the God of, who's going to fulfill his covenant. He's going to fulfill his promises. Daniel calls him the God of heaven, the King of heaven, the Most High, the Most High God, the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the living God, the God of my fathers. He calls him Yahweh and Lord, the Prince of hosts and the Ancient of days. To, to Daniel, this is a God who is powerful beyond people. Beyond circumstances, he is a God that rules. And all we have to do is say, okay, God, I'll follow you. Rather than following the dictates of my own heart, rather than following the things that I think will make other people happy with me, rather than following after other gods who can't do anything for me, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to lay my life down at your feet and I'll do whatever you ask me to do, even if that means exile, even if it means my life. And you know what God says when we do that? He says, I've got a plan for you. Because you've given me your life, I'm going to do good things with you and through you. And Daniel and his friends, these boys, they became, they became influencers at the top of the government that controlled the world. That might not be where God has you and me to go, but, but that was where Daniel's story led. To Daniel, God is this forever living, sovereign king of the universe. Nothing God sets his mind to do can be thwarted by men. And among all the kingly talk and all the sovereignty talk, Daniel doesn't want us to escape the reality that God, not just the God of the universe, but God was with him. He is Daniel's God. And he cares about Daniel. The boys kept their allegiance to God. God protected them. They put themselves in the place that God could bless them. And so I just have this question for you. Where is your allegiance? Who has your heart? Where are you going? What direction are you taking in life? Are you in a place that God can bless you? Are you walking in God's path today?